welcome back. Let's Get Physical Therapy is an educational podcast brought to you by MedStar Health and hosted by me, physical therapist Becca Schumer. I will be sharing the mic with tons of healthcare professionals with the goal of educating and inspiring fellow PTs and future PTs. We hope you find this both informative and inspirational, ultimately optimizing how we treat our patients and grow as professionals. Please enjoy today's episode. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Bertram, who received his Doctor of Podiatric Medicine at New York College of Podiatric Medicine. He joined Metzler Health for a residency in podiatric surgery and then completed a specialty fellowship with Kaiser Permanente in foot and ankle trauma and reconstruction. He is a member of the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. Dr. Bertram sees patients for fracture care, ligament and tendon pathology, foot and ankle deformities, Charcot, neuroarthropathy, and diabetic foot care. He performs minimally invasive operative techniques such as minimally invasive bunionectomy, minimally invasive ligament reconstruction, and arthroscopy. He is also specialty trained in Charcot reconstruction, external fixation, limb salvage, and wound care. I realize this is sort of a random podcast. We're not doing a foot and ankle series yet. Maybe we'll do that next year, but I'm really excited to have Dr. Bertram on. He's going to talk a lot about flat foot reconstruction and really just general things to be aware of when someone's going to have foot surgery and the connection between the physical therapist and the doctor uh, and the importance of that prehab and post-hab. So let's give it a listen. Dr. Bertram, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You know, I think this is a first having a podcast at 630 in the morning, but I dig it because I'm a morning person. Yes, this is much easier for me not having to scramble clinic and OR to get this done. Got it. Well, we appreciate you taking some time to do this for us. We are going to talk all things foot and ankle surgeries today. So before we dig into that, I'd love to hear how you got into the field. Yeah, my my introduction to medicine actually started with a podiatrist, my friend's father, uh, and that's kind of what got me looking into it. I was always involved in basic science growing up, really enjoyed marine biology, but knew I wanted to work with people. Uh, And then as far as the surgical end of that, kind of growing up, worked with carpentry as summer jobs, et cetera, knew really liked working with my hands. So figured if I can combine the two things, that would be an excellent career going forward. Um, And I think we all know people need their ankles and their feet in order to ambulate and walk. I think movement is really important for quality of life and happiness. So uh, with that, we can help people continue to move and have a high functional level uh, by keeping their ankles and their feet healthy. Love it. What kind of training does your specific field have as a podiatrist? Yeah, so podiatry starts off with a little bit different of a track. Uh, podiatry school is separate from medical school, so we get a degree in podiatric medicine. That's why you're going to see DPM after our name. Uh, that's four years, just as medical school is, and very similar with the first two being uh, more class load, and then the second two where you get into clinics and off-service rotations. Uh, specifically for the surgical track in podiatry, you're going to go to a three-year residency. Uh, most of those at this point you are going to be learning forefoot and rear foot surgery, uh, but traditionally those were split into forefoot and rear foot surgery. Um, and then after that, I personally went on to do a fellowship, uh, which is a little bit more specific training, sometimes more advanced training. Uh, in my case, that was a focus on rear foot reconstruction and trauma down in Atlanta. Uh, so different start, different degree, uh, somewhat similar path afterwards. Got it. Thanks for sharing that. Getting into foot and ankle surgeries, we're going to dive right into this. We have a lot to talk about, but 
I'd like to know just general, how does a typical course of treatment go after foot or ankle surgery? And obviously it depends on what you have done, but there's some general rules of thumb that, that happen. Yeah, so afterwards there's often a non-weight bearing period, which can be very difficult for patients and kind of tough for us to manage. Uh, and then once you get past the non-weight bearing period, you usually progressively add stress to whatever structure you healed, uh, which begins with uh, protective weight bearing and then followed by uh, kind of progression back to gait, uh, either in regular shoes or bracing, depending on how bad the pathology was uh, leading up to it. But as you alluded to, it's very different depending on whether it's a hammer toe surgery versus kind of a rear foot reconstructive surgery for a flat foot. Um, and then also the patient factors can change a lot also, especially with that time to recovery. Um, so they are difficult recoveries. I try and make that very clear to patients. I think that uh, they'll think of the foot and ankle surgeries as maybe less invasive or something that's going to be easier to recover from more proximal surgeries when it's actually the literature shows it's really the reverse. These are small bones and small structures taking on the same amount of force um, each time you step. So uh, the recovery can be difficult. And I think it's really important that patients understand that before going into surgery. Uh, and then I think it, that makes it very important to exhaust conservative measures before uh, taking on surgery, too. Definitely. Are you a fan of the knee scooter that people are using? I am a big fan of the knee scooter, uh, but they don't come without their cautions. Uh, definitely when patients turn too fast, you can dump over the side. Um, so I do think like prehab is very important to help with these assisted devices to get around afterwards. Um, but yeah, choosing assisted devices can be very difficult. And we lean on you guys a lot for helping us in making those decisions. When your patients are transitioning to the CAN boot, are you putting any shoe inserts into their, their boot or are you just kind of letting them walk around? And uh, It depends on the pathology, uh, but a lot of times for something where pronatory forces are going to add unwanted stress to whatever correction you did, uh, then yeah, oftentimes we'll put in like an over-the-counter insert into the CAN boot in order to kind of help accept those forces and encourage the foot to function the way it's supposed to. Yeah. I think when we, we have patients after foot and ankle surgery, they're kind of surprised at how much swelling there is and how long that continues. How long is a typical course of swelling going to occur uh, in a patient after foot and ankle surgery? And what's what kind of expectations should we have? Yeah, as far as the swelling, I definitely like to undersell and over deliver. So I say six months to a year, six months being more of those forefoot surgeries and a year being uh, the rear foot surgeries. Uh, and I think it's really important to explain to them that each time you progress along um, and add more activity and stress, you're going to kind of get a new type of swelling and a new source of swelling, uh, and it should decrease over time. Um, one of the, I explained to them, if you get a little bit of swelling in your thigh, you're not going to notice it at all because of all the soft tissue there, but around your midfoot and ankle and in the forefoot, uh, a little bit of swelling is going to be very noticeable. There's not as much soft tissue uh, and that's going to push on nerves and continue to be painful. Um, so really expressing the importance of elevating immediately after surgery and what elevation actually is, because a lot of times patients aren't sure or they aren't actually doing it in the way that you would want uh and then postoperatively just compressive type of bandages yeah especially after the rear foot and ankle surgeries i think being clear that up to a year for that acute swelling or not acute swelling but the soft tissue swelling is going to be there and then depending on the injury that ankle or that foot might just be a little bit more swollen than their other foot is it normal years later for every, I feel like I have patients after an ankle fracture, they had it 20 years ago and it's kind of swells up every now and again. Is that pretty normal? 
Yeah, that is normal. So unfortunately, the cartilage damage or some of the soft tissue damage that occurs during that injury can be restressed afterwards. Um, and then you kind of get that secondary hit of the ankle fracture uh, where the patient did good for the first X amount of time. And now you're really almost dealing with a new type of injury and you're going to get repeat swelling along with that very often being having to do with the cartilage within the ankle joint. Got it. And with the opioid epidemic, uh, there's a lot of conversations with as far as pain meds and how long a patient um, will be prescribed opioids. So what is your typical course of pain medication after a uh, foot or ankle surgery? Yeah, so I do try and have like a multimodal attack on pain control. So using more than just the narcotic pain medications, uh, but specifically to the narcotics for the smaller forefoot surgery, uh, I think really about a week is the most time patients need. Uh, I'm okay with personally prescribing around two to three weeks. And then afterwards, I have a serious discussion that we're going to have them get them into pain management and make sure at a minimum, they're going to have a lot of appointments with not just me, but other physicians in order to make sure it's appropriate for them to keep getting that medication um, and probably more in that four-week zone for some of the rear foot or ankle surgery. Um, the pain control afterwards, I think, actually reverts a lot back to the swelling that you already alluded to, um, and they really have to buy into controlling that swelling uh, and staying off of that foot to control pain and not just trying to put narcotics on top of what they're doing. Yeah, having had too many foot surgeries myself, I can speak to the importance of just staying off it those first couple weeks is like critical it makes such a big difference yeah there is a big push for early weight bearing uh in a lot of these surgeries which i think is important uh but i think can be over extrapolated you definitely don't want to have that extra excess stress in those first couple of days during the inflammatory phase of healing um but then of course as soon as the tissue can accept it i think early pt is probably like a more accurate way to look at it uh so gradually adding stress but not necessarily the stress of weight bearing i think that's a great way to segue into sort of stages of healing for soft tissue or any whatever procedure you're doing can you jump into that a little bit and tell us what the healing process looks like yeah, so for soft tissue, you're always going to start with an inflammatory phase, which is from the time of injury or the time of surgery, uh, up to usually a few days afterwards. Uh, and then you're going to get the proliferation phase. Uh, I think of this as more the materials for reconstructing are then laid down there by the body, uh, whether it's bone or collagen. Um, and then afterwards, you get remodeling, which is where those structures align in a way that are going to accept the forces that need to be placed on them. Um, and kind of towards the end of that proliferation phase uh, and into the remodeling phase, that physical therapy or, you know, gradual addition of stress is going to be very important because uh, you have to tell those soft tissue structures or that bone how they're going to be accepting the stresses through them so uh, they can align. I think the easiest way to think about it is with ligaments and tendons, you need them to accept tensile forces. So you need the longitudinal fibers uh, to be aligned in the same direction that those tensile forces will be. And the body doesn't know to do that unless you tell it where those forces are going to come from. Um, and when you don't tell it where those forces are going to come from, that's when you end up with large bulbous scarring of some of these tendons or ligamentous areas. Yeah, that's great. I want to jump back one second to kind of recovering from surgery. You had talked about some perioperative nutrition that might be helpful. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this can go on for a long time as far as perioperative nutrition. So um, in a healthy patient, I think it's appropriate for us to get some of these labs and look at it, mostly being 
vitamin D, uh, and then including things like vitamin C and zinc uh, to it around there, and then also making sure that the patient's just general nutrition intake as far as their albumin and protein are where they need to be. Um, so just generally, I'm always supplementing patients with vitamin D, zinc, and vitamin C. Uh, and then I think if needed, I'm going, I will send them to kind of like a bone health specialist or an endocrinologist preoperative uh, if it needs a more in-depth look at how to kind of manage those things. Got it. Before we jump into talking about flat foot reconstruction, I'd love to hear some red flags for reasons why you may not do a foot or ankle surgery on someone. Um, patient is not exhausted. Their conservative measurements is the main one or has not kind of bought into trying to exhaust those conservative measurements uh, because I think that you're not going to have the buy-in with the therapy and the non-weight bearing needed afterwards. Um, cosmetics cannot be a goal in my hands for foot and ankle surgery. Um, one of my mentors, you know, there's nothing that surgery can't make worse. So if the patient's functioning well and not in pain, I'm not going to correct a bunion just because it's present there. Um, and then comorbidities. And there are some absolute stops like uncontrolled diabetes um, is probably the most common one that we'll see where you just really can't do the surgery if it's elective, regardless of the symptoms, uh, because you can ultimately end up with an amputation if you move forward there. Peripheral vascular disease is another one. And what about prehab? How, what, tell me so, a little bit about prehab and are you using it and is it helpful? Yes, uh, I am using it now. I'm about two years out and uh, unfortunately, I had to learn the hard way about how important prehab was with patients falling on assisted devices postoperatively. Um, so getting them in, and I think it's really important also psychologically for them to start that relationship with the therapist also before, and then getting them used to some of their assisted devices and how they're going to be non-weight bearing afterwards. Uh, I also think that uh, trip to the physical therapist lets them know like how serious this is going to be and that the recovery is going to be tough. I love doing prehabs for foot and ankle surgery because when patients in your office, you spend however many minutes you're able to spend with them and then they come in, they have so many questions that they forgot or that came up after seeing you. Uh, so it's a great opportunity for us as physical therapists to educate them on expectations, but also to prepare them for safety in their house post-op. Because I think people don't realize how hard it is to be on crutches and not keeping weight on their foot. Yeah, I also think it speaks to the buy-in of the patient prior, you know, making sure they go to that appointment and are open to going to that appointment uh, and kind of definitely agree with getting those questions answered before. I usually schedule just one extra visit in my office prior to surgery um, so that they can digest the fact that they're having surgery and come back in with a list of questions ready uh, and hopefully even have a family member or support system with them during that visit. All right. Flat foot reconstruction time. Tell me about it. What is flat foot reconstruction? What's the common age uh, that you're doing these on? So for me, the most common age is probably going to be that 40 to 60 year old adult. Uh, that's in my practice. There's a whole nother category, which is pediatric flat foot surgeries, um, which I don't perform them. We have Children's National right across the street here. So those patients would go over there. Um, and a lot of times it's a foot that's been insufficient the patient's whole life due to the osseous structure. Uh, and then kind of once we hit that age of 40 to 60 years old, uh, you start to get the degeneration of cartilage and joints and just kind of the where the uh, soft tissue structure becomes insufficient and is no longer just inflamed and painful, but 
can't actually perform the function it was supposed to in supporting the foot. Um, and then kind of the cause of the flat foot can be different and change the age in which you're usually going to see this. Um, uh, for me, the most common type of flat foot I see is the adult acquired flat foot, which is also referred to posterior tibial tendinitis or the progressive flat foot. So the foot is actually changing shape and structure as the patient's pathology worsens. Um, and then you have the group of kind of the genetic or congenital deformities that that foot has been flat the patient's whole entire life. Those are things like uh, tarsal coalitions, um, which cause kind of more of a rigid flat foot structure. And um, even there, usually that's going to be in the teenage years where the pain's going to start. But a lot of times patients won't get the destructive or it won't become destructive to the point of requiring surgery till they're older. Is it? this genetic at all because i feel like i see a lot of patients i see a lot of kids that have flat foot and they're like my parents have flat feet so is this inherited from our parents is that part of it yeah there's a genetic component to this um a lot of people come in i got my bunion from my mom my uncle has a flat foot also um and that genetic component can be complicated is the genetics from ligamentous laxity causing a lack of soft tissue support of the bones or is it the actual bone structure, the way it's set up, adding the stress back on the soft tissue, which eventually becomes insufficient? Uh, and then on top of that, the coalitions, et cetera. Um, it's, a lot of it's not genetic in the sense that you have this gene or this one mutation, and now you have a flat foot. Um, but there is definitely a component of the osteostructure and just the way your soft tissue is set up that you're going to get from genetics. And I know we t you spoke earlier about exhausting conservative measures. Is this the type of thing as you get older and then your 40s, 60s, when you're starting to do this, does the pain come on gradually? Um, and then are you trying a, an insert like footwear to try to help with this? What does that look like before you actually enter the OR? Yeah, I think uh, with the adult acquired flat foot, it usually is coming on gradually. Um, and it's going to start usually with pain at the posterior tibial tendon or what's they're going to say they have ankle pain and they're going to point to the medial aspect of their ankle and then kind of intercepting that early with conservative care uh, with functional support can be helpful. So uh, with the care of these flat foot or really any deformity, I usually break it down for patients into two sections. We can either accommodate the deformity and support the deformity or we can fix the deformity with the second one being surgery. Um, so yeah, that early conservative care for those patients uh, in order to support the posterior tibial tendon, whether it's functional inserts or bracing, and then of course the strengthening of those structures, uh, that can prevent the progression or slow down the progression to where the destruction of the soft tissue or the bone is now kind of irreparable and we're talking more along the surgical end. Um, yeah, and it could also slow down the stages of the actual deformity developing as far as that collapse of both the longitudinal and transverse arch of the foot. And what is joint sparing type of flat foot reconstruction? I know you mentioned there's a couple types. What does joint sparing mean? Yeah, so um, joint sparing is when you're avoiding fusions of the joint, so trying to keep motion through the joints, uh, at, but still recreating the arch of the foot and putting the foot in what we call like a rectus position. Um, and I think I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but 
the problem with the flat foot is that during gait, uh, your foot, when you first have heel strike, it's supposed to be a shock absorber or that pronatory phase. Uh, so that ground reaction force doesn't shock every structure up your leg into your hip and even your back. Uh, and then as heel stance or as during the stance phase goes, it turns from that shock absorber. It needs to supinate and become a rigid lever for propulsion so the Achilles tendon can perform push off. Uh, when the foot flattens out uh, and you go to push off, that force usually breaks in the middle of the foot now instead of going out to the forefoot. Uh, and you have just a very inefficient way of walking and then that puts all the stress uh, on the structures so what you're trying to do with both surgeries uh, in addition to pain control is put that foot back under the leg where it's supposed to be so that it can be a rigid propulsion propulsor during the push-off phase um, and the joint sparing procedures really try and do that in a more naturally physiologic way afterwards by leaving the joints open um, especially in the rear foot like the subtalar joint and the tn joint uh, and you're going to do that by osteotomies outside of the joints um, in order to realign them and then soft tissue balancing. Um, so joint sparing, broad category, but referring to uh, limiting fusions in order to achieve this correction. So getting technical here, what are you are you doing opening wedge, closing wedge and what what type of soft tissue are you using? Like cadaver yeah, so or autograft or are you doing a tendon transfer, et cetera? Uh, a lot of the soft tissue balancing will be like it starts with the posterior group lengthening. So whether it's at the level of the gastroc or the Achilles, and that's just lengthening. We're not using uh, any allograft or autograft there often. Uh, and then medial structures of the foot we're repairing too from a soft tissue standpoint. So posterior tibial tendon. And that could be anything from just a simple primary pair where you're getting rid of unhealthy tissue and just suturing the tendon itself back together um, all the way up to a reconstruction. Uh, in my hands, it's generally more allograft where you're transferring a tendon. So the flexor digitorum longus tendon is going to be the most often transferred one. So you're moving that tendon to the insertion point of the posterior tibial tendon uh, to either augment or replace it depending on how badly the posterior tibial tendon uh, is damaged but there are also procedures with allograft described like semi-t is often used uh, in order to reconstruct those tendons um, so yeah like reconstruction using the tendon itself versus or i'm sorry repair using the tendon and soft tissue itself versus the reconstruction and then a lot of times lengthening and or shortening um, with lengthening happening posteriorly and on those lateral structures that become shortened um, and then adding the shortening to the structures that become lengthened, which is mostly on the medial side. Uh, most commonly, you can read about things like spring ligament and the posterior tibial tendon there. It sounds like a lot of things are going down when someone has a surgery. What is the order you do? This in? Usually it's from proximal to distal. Uh, during surgery, but there are exceptions uh, to that rule. But I would say most classically, you're going to start with your posterior group lengthening, uh, and then you're going to move on to probably calcaneal osteotomies or fusion, and then you're going to probably focus on the medial column of the foot there and move on to the osseous and soft tissue structures there. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot that goes into it. Um, which means your physical exam needs to be really in-depth and spot-on, both weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing exam and dynamic, kind of a gait exam there before you get into it. So uh, 
this is definitely one of those things where you can put the same case in front of two very, very good surgeons and their specific procedures are going to be different. Uh, although the goal of the procedure is going to be the same at the end. Uh, and then when would a joint fusion be more appropriate? I'm guessing arthritis, more arthritic issues going on. Arthritis and a rigid deformity. So a deformity that you can't manipulate in your hands kind of to get back. Yeah, so arthritis is going to be probably the most common one, uh, but there's a lot of patient factors that come into play too. So uh, comorbidities, diabetes, rheumatological diseases are very more often going to be fusion procedures because it's a more reliable procedure. Uh, patients age, their weight, uh, and their desired activity level. Um, and then also just the how severe the deformity is prior, how flat is that foot, and how abducted is that foot leading into surgery. And what exactly are you fusing? Uh, most common is going to be joints around the talus, so subtalar joint, talonavicular joint, uh, sometimes calcaneal cuboid joint, uh, but then almost any joint on the medial column, so talonavicular joint, navicular cuneiform joint, tarsal metatarsal joint. Uh, even down to the first MPJ, uh, may be fused in order to kind of, if you think about it, kickstand that medial column up so that that arch stays supported. Um, what along the medial column gets fused uh, depends on what's arthritic and sometimes what we call like the joint sag or where the apex of the deformity is. So if you think about a lateral x-ray where you're really seeing that apex point inferiorly, what joint that's at. And is this like other areas of the body where the joints above and below start to become like a little more hypermobile in time potentially? Yeah, you're really relying on the joints around your fusions to take up the excess motion that you got rid of. Um, I think in the foot, we're lucky the amount of joints and bones that are there gives us a little bit more options, uh, but you definitely need to watch out for stress on outside joints afterwards. And then multi-level fusions are going to be more rigid. Um, and then I think that comes back to your reduction or where you fuse that joint is going to be really important for how the rest of the foot and the other joints function. So that's got to be spot on when you're fusing or you're going to have a bad result. Yeah. As far as accuracy, I imagine when the foot's on the ground compared to the foot's up while you're operating on them, that's very different forces that are happening. How do you stimulate weight bearing in the OR? It's a really good point. So uh, simulated weight bearing uh, during your procedures is extremely important. Uh, I use a foot plate, uh, so I make sure it's a metal plate and you put it on and it's got to touch the heel and the ball of the foot. Um, sometimes we kind of learn by just pushing up on the lateral column of the foot. That's going to be really inaccurate though. Uh, and then getting really good x-rays while you're doing that um, in order to look at kind of the angles of the bones while you're comparing them. Uh, yeah, that could be kind of difficult to achieve, and you got to think about it with the knee extended and the knee flex because of how much the gastroc pulling on the calc will change kind of the angles of that foot there. So, yeah, simulated weight bearing with a foot plate is what we use and really pushing as hard as you can on it because you're never really going to recreate uh, the force of the body coming down. Um, and then I think one of the most tough things kind of along the same line is some of these procedures are dynamic procedures, meaning we're moving where bone is, such as with the heel bone, will slide it over medially. Uh, but a major point of that procedure is so that when the Achilles tendon pulls on the heel, it uh, encourages supination instead of pronation. Um, really tough to kind of uh, have that happen on the table, uh, but you just kind of need to use your biomechanics and alignment to extrapolate what that tendon is going to do afterwards. 
it's pretty amazing what you can do <laughs> realign the foot because of that that makes me wonder like the importance of physical therapy doesn't make me wonder about the importance of physical therapy i know the importance of physical therapy but as far as their weight bearing because potentially they have this on both sides right like what are the odds that they have it bilaterally and then once one is fixed and the other's not that's going to really affect their gait afterwards yeah so uh a lot of it is actually unilateral believe it or not including the adult like the collapsing adult flat foot and a lot of these tarsal coalitions will be unilateral uh but yeah as far as if it is bilateral which one's worse um and let them you know you got to really think about protecting the other foot afterwards um and if you are going to have to fix both that's a long timeline um i would not do both at the same time uh way too much surgery i think uh and then the recovery is going to be very tough um so that's i mean if you're going to have both flat feet done you're looking at kind of a two-year course probably at minimum before you're really back to your regular level of function yeah, tough that's t- tough problem uh yeah. with as far as weight bearing and function uh we often start with something where we don't have there's a lot of uh functional deficits after surgery uh but unfortunately that's what you're starting with and you don't have another option that's fair what is the post-op course for someone let's say joint sparing that has a joint sparing flat foot reconstruction or repair yeah so joint sparing it's usually going to be about six to eight weeks of non-weight bearing uh, and then after that, it's going to be progressive weight bearing, usually in a cam boot, um, followed by some sort of insert device in the foot uh, and usually uh, probably uh, functional insert forever afterwards to continue to support uh, your reconstruction. Uh, but it doesn't just start at the six weeks after non-weight bearing. Um, as long as incision healing is there, I'm going to have patients doing like passive or act, I'm sorry, active range of motion with no resistance as early as one week post-op. Uh, and then kind of from there, adding the stress with uh, active range of motion against resistance and then progressing into weight bearing. Um, so as far as like I tell patients, they're really starting their therapy as early as one week there. Um, and just depending on the procedure, the swelling and the incision, that's usually one to two weeks where you're going to start that motion. Um, unless that patient needs to be in a cast to protect them from their pathology and or themselves in that postoperative period. Yeah. When do you send them to us? Uh, so prehab, send them to you guys. Uh, and then I like to send them to you guys once there can be active range of motion against resistance, because uh, that's when I think they're going to need help from someone. So anywhere that could be anywhere in that two week all the way up to like eight, 10 week mark, depending on if they're in a cast or if in their a removal device like a Cambu. Yeah, I love to see the, these patients early because a lot of them want to be doing something. So even if I can attack the foot, you know, we're mainly doing edema control at that point um, and passive range motion, but just to give them other stuff to do while that period of healing is occurring in the, the early onset of that. Yeah, I definitely am sending people to PT prior to surgery now and earlier after surgery. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Is there anything else with regards to your flat foot reconstruction or any really anything on this topic that you haven't touched on that you would like to share with us? Uh, I think we probably have to get into the joint destructive procedures, which is the fusion procedures. So uh, very recently, I had a lot of people from your department come shadow me, and I thought that was good because they got to see where we were starting with prior to us fusing these joints and you guys seeing them Uh, because obviously physical therapy generally like love motion of joints, love movement of joints, and we're now doing something to get rid of all of that. 
Um, so in these these joint destructive procedures can often be more reliable. So your chance of recurrence is going to be lower uh, because that joint's not open for the foot to flatten out again um, and is going to afford an activity level that is more than acceptable for a lot of patients. So if we can get them a more reliable procedure with that functional level and pain control they need, sometimes joint destructive um, is the way to go. Uh, and oftentimes you're starting with a joint that is so destroyed uh, that you kind of don't have another option. Um, in the ankle and the first metatarsal phalangeal joint, we do have like joint replacement options, but generally speaking in the other areas of the foot, we don't have the joint replacement options like you would have in a knee or a hip. Uh, they're just not there in order to try and recreate those joints. Um, so this patient is going to have a rigid foot, and that is going to have uh, consequences during their gait. Uh, that foot was often rigid before the joint destructive procedures, meaning that joint didn't move. Um, and educating patients on that afterwards uh, and the fact that, you know, function and pain control is your goal and not recreating the foot they had when they were younger uh, is really important. Uh, and then having, you know, conversations with your physical therapist so they know what we're trying to make mobile and what we're not trying to make mobile uh, in that post-operative period. Critical to read the op note or to talk to you guys and say what exactly happened and even seeing a picture of it is helpful to help us understand, like, we're not trying to gain motion when the joints fuse. Obviously, that's a big no-no. Yes. <laughs> yes. Going back to pre-op, are you using any like orthobiologics, any PRP, any of that BMA, um, any tricks that you're trying before that have been deemed helpful or does it depend on how uh, how far gone the tendon is? Yeah, it depends on how far gone the tendon is and what the person's kind of functional level and functional goal is. Um, so for like acute tendon injuries that lead on to chronic tendinosis, I think that's when those adjuncts are very useful. Uh, there was a trauma that caused that tendon injury. There wasn't necessarily an issue with the foundation of the foot that led to that degeneration. Uh, but even in the where the foot is collapsing or the foundation's gone and you're getting the degeneration of the tendon, it's great augmentation as far as like the PRP in addition to your structural support. Uh, I would not say my practice is like sports medicine heavy by any means. It's more on that reconstructive uh, kind of end stage portion of it. So I'm not using them as much. Uh, but if someone's in that earlier stage, I will make sure they get in with one of my partners or someone who does a lot more of those modalities um, with the biologics. Now, intraoperatively, I use biologics a lot to kind of um, help prevent complications and then also aid in like a more rapid recovery or a more predictable healing. This has been very, very informative. I have learned a lot about flat foot <laughs> reconstructions. Again, any last minute pearls of wisdom you want to drop on us with regards to this topic? Yeah, we need to manipulate the foot so that the ground reaction forces are coming up the center of the leg and the tibia so that your medial structures are not getting overstressed. And that's usually the goal of the surgery. Uh, most of the time we're going to try and do that with joint sparing procedures if needed or if we can, uh, but sometimes joint destructive procedures are the only thing that's going to get you to where the patient needs to go. Gotcha. As we wrap up, we love to end our episodes with a favorite quote. I would love to hear a quote that moves you, drives you, inspires you. It doesn't have to be medical related, but what's your favorite quote? Uh, it does happen to be medical related, uh, but it's that patients don't care how much you know until they know that you care. 
Um, they can't see the work that you've done surgically. They don't understand the reconstructive process. And if they don't think you're bought into their healing, uh, you can do the best reconstruction you want. They're not going to buy into their recovery and their outcomes are not going to be uh, what you want them to be. So true. So true. Awesome. Dr. Bertram, where can patients find you? Where are you treating out of? Uh, yeah, I'm at two locations. So Washington Hospital Center in D.C. Uh, and then in Maryland, Montgomery County at MedSAR Montgomery Medical Center. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to the Let's Get Physical Therapy podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at MedSAR Health PT. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review so we can reach more listeners just like you. As always, we appreciate your time and hope you join us for our next episode.